Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com, brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. I'm Matthew Rota, your host, and today we're joined by Dr. Joe Crenshaw, VP of Technical Service from APC. How are you doing today, Joe? Very well. Glad to uh, be able to participate in this discussion. Excited to talk a little bit about functional proteins and getting into biosecurity and health. Very few people better to have on a podcast than you to talk about some of this stuff. Before we get into all of the details, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in animal agriculture and your journey to APC and, and what it's like since you've been there? Kind of a long story. <laughs> Grew up in uh, western Tennessee and the son of a sharecropper. Uh, have a couple of brothers in the pig industry as well. When we were kids, uh, we picked cotton by hand and were sharecroppers. And we had a few pigs. I remember when I was really young and my dad uh, uh, never wanted animals in the house, but uh, one, t- one time in the winter time, he had an old sow that had some pigs, and he had to bring those pigs in the house to keep them warm by the, by the kerosene stove we had. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we were probably the original backyard farmers back in those days, and, and uh, you know, in the early 60s. And, you know, eventually we got out of the pig business, uh, but uh, we went uh, as, as kids. Uh, Growing up in high school and, you know, being in 4-H and also not wanting to pick cotton the rest of my life, and we decided to go into undergrad school at University of Tennessee at Martin, and uh, which was nearby where we grew up at. And three of us brothers went into uh, animal science, and all three of us eventually ended up getting into working in the in the big industry, both academia as well as uh, myself in the industry. Over the years, as a undergrad, I think one opportunity I had in animal science was to go work at the University of Tennessee Experiment Station during the summer intern program and working with uh, different uh, types of fairing uh, conditions. So we had uh, A-frame hut pasture fairing, we had uh, uh, what we called confinement in those days, and, and then uh, partial confinement, where the sows were, were let outside, you know, in the pasture part of the time, but also fared inside. Part of my job at that time was to collect records and do things like that, so I got interested in the pig industry and got more hands-on experience, and um uh, Went on to uh, graduate school at the University of Nebraska, and along with my two brothers, we all three were, were there during the Nebraska days back in 
in the 70s and 80s. And, the glory uh, days. Yeah. And uh, worked as a research technician for Ernie Payo. Actually, a lot of people in the industry today are, are former students uh, of Ernie Payo uh, in the swine industry today. And um, in those days, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of research, uh, various uh, things, anywhere from collecting blood samples and doing slaughter checks and all kind of stuff like that, uh, way in well, getting into research. And so from there, I went on to North Dakota State University and was on the faculty there for about nine years. Um, and teaching animal science and doing some extension and uh, uh, research as well uh, with faculty there. And then uh, left, uh, industry, left uh, North Dakota State and went to uh, uh, work with uh, Mormon Speeds in Quincy, Illinois, as swine R&D director for about five years. And um, then uh, from that, went, uh, my wife and I and kids decided to go to the country of Laos uh, to do uh, kind of missions, uh, development work there, and uh, continued to advise on projects there uh, ever since then. Then, come back to the States and, uh, soon after 9-11 in uh, 2001, and I uh, joined APC in early 2002, and I've been, been at APC for over 21 years now, uh, involved with uh, R&D service support uh, globally uh, around the world. So give me an opportunity to travel and see a lot of different situations in swine production in various countries around the world, anywhere from highly sophisticated, high biosecurity facilities to uh, basic backyard production you know, in di different countries. So I think that's an education. Yeah. We'll see those things and experience. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, so you said you guys used to pick cotton by hand. Now I stopped over once and, and started doing that just to figure out what that would have been like back in the day. And that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I went to pigs. Yeah. <laughs> pigs are a lot friendlier. <laughs> so where did you grow up in Western Tennessee? Oh, a town called Newburn, Tennessee, okay. 100 miles north of Memphis. Oh, okay. Along the yeah. Mississippi River. Yeah, so it's pretty far west then. Yeah. When we think about the topic today around functional proteins, can before we dig into it, can you talk a little bit high level about how functional proteins have value related to swine health and immunity? What role do they play? Well, I think the number one application you know, for pigs with plasma, and it's been well known for quite a few years now, uh, it helps pigs get started on feet. You know, the pigs uh, take off eating, uh, and it's a very linear uh, response. If you increase level of plasma in the diet, you get an increased linear uh, uh, response to both feed intake and growth. Uh, during that early weaning period, through that first 14 to 21 days post-weaning, we'll see a very good growth and feed and take response. And so uh, for many, many years, actually it's been probably 40 years now, people have been using plasma and 
uh, big starter diets around the globe. And uh, it's, it's probably the most unique protein in terms of getting big started on feed, not just because of palatability. And what we dug into on the basic research side is to really understand how uh, weaning stress affects feed intake and growth of pigs, uh, even in the absence of any high disease situation. Uh, basically, these plasma proteins are modulating the inflammatory immune response across the whole body. And uh, when you wean pigs, it actually stimulates inflammation in the gut. And uh, if you're feeding the plasma proteins during that time period, it modulates that immune response, keeps it from getting overstimulated, and brings it back to a normal state much quicker. So that uh, helps drive people. And that's basically the, the basic uh, mode of action, so to speak, of, of plasma in that application. What other discoveries did you guys find in regards to feeding plasma uh, and how it affects health and uh, performance? Were there any other areas that you guys identified? In various stages of production. Uh, I think one of the first experiences I had with plasma after I joined APC, uh, we brought in some uh, uh, finisher pigs that were what you call bleacher pigs, obvious ulcer conditions. And we had uh, a product, uh, Solutine, which is uh, plasma that's been dehybernated so it can uh, mix into drinking water. And uh, and so we brought these pigs in. Uh, obvious ulcer-type pigs. And as we were sorting them out and putting them on two different groups, one a control group and one a solutine group, one of the most fascinating things I saw about that was the control pigs, they drank water, went and laid down, walked by the feeder and went and laid down. The solutine pigs that put some solutine solution in the, in the trough, those pigs drank that, and almost all of them walked right to the feeder from that point. Huh. So over, over the next uh, few days after that, we kept uh, euphemizing some of the pigs and checking out the ulcers and, you know, the plasma or solutine pigs would feed in their stomach and their ulcers were starting to heal. And the control group of pigs, even three days later, hadn't even eaten anything. Um, you know, and Still had the big old esophageal ulcers uh, in their stomach, so so that really uh, caught my attention in terms of how fast uh, the proteins act on helping stimulate uh, the feed intake or the response in the animals. And this was in you know finishing things, you know, and so some of the other work. Uh, discoveries that we've done over the years is look at use of plasma in South uh, uh, particularly uh, in uh, uh, PERS, herds where you've got chronic PERS and you put uh, even just 10 pounds per ton of plasma in the gestation and lactation feed, it seems to soften the blow of, of the PERS activity. Uh, uh, 
you see better fern rate, better uh, number of pigs weaned and born, uh, or born and weaned uh, after feeding plasma in that sow herd. Uh, we've also done studies just looking at plasma and lactation feed increases intake of the sow as well as uh, improved weaning weight of the pigs as well. So a lot of, lot of different applications. Uh, certainly the, the pig starter diets are, are where the big use and focus is, but uh, it certainly uh, seems to interact well with pigs. And, and more recently with all the uh, FHT E. coli issues that people have been dealing with uh, a year or so ago, did a challenge study with FHT E. coli. Uh, fed that to pigs, uh, either diet with or without plasma, and the control diet had soy protein isolate in it. And we gave them a, re- a rather harsh challenge of E. coli under an experimental challenge model. Uh, but uh, if they were fed plasma, the pigs uh, uh, had a much better survival rate post-challenge with that harsh challenge to be coli, F-18 coli. And uh, we presented that at the Lehman Swine Conference last year. And actually, we were able to uh, feed uh, economically uh, uh, lower or similar uh, cost feed uh, on their alternative program compared to the plasma program, the plasma therapy is actually cheaper to do on a cost-per-time basis than the, uh, than the uh, uh, control feed in that particular study. So, so in regards to the cost there, how does plasma maybe bring producers during times of uncertainty and economic downturn um, an opportunity to cut cost at a time where cost is king? Well, and certainly in our industry today, we're we're facing an unprecedented time. I think of uh, uh, low profitability in the U.S. big industry today, and and certainly cutting costs is keen. But I I'm kind of the old school mentality, I guess, on this. But uh, I think if you cut corners too much on not getting those pigs started right, you're going to have a lot more problem later on. And uh, we've got, you know, uh, quite a bit of data showing that if you get those pigs started on feed, uh, and you're only feeding in that time period, you're only, you know, using maybe uh, less than 3% of your total feed to get that pig to market weight. Uh, when you're using plasma on the feed, uh, it's not a place to cut corners. I think you can probably use plasma in more simplified diets. Uh, for example, you could you could probably use plasma with little higher levels of soybean meal than not normally use in that kind of feed, you know, to reduce your your cost. But I think it's important that you get those pigs started eating well. And, and I think most people manage pigs at, at weaning and nurseries know if you get them started eating feed good, our data shows that uh, very consistent. And uh, 
not only in using improving growth performance, but uh, we see pretty consistently reduced mortality in these pigs as well. And, and I think in today's uh, environment, reducing mortality uh, is key, uh, yeah. a key focus for, for producers. Yes, yes. So uh, I want to bring this into biosecurity and production of feed ingredients and some stuff there. Before we go there, though, I have some rapid fire questions I ask people. Okay. Um, so you kind of already answered this one, but what is the university that you tend to cheer for? Well, I'm probably, you know, today probably more of an Iowa State fan, I guess, but mainly because some of my kids went to Iowa State. It, what is the top of your bucket list for travel? Well, I've never been to Australia. I would like to go there sometime. If you had to go up on stage and sing a karaoke song, what would it be? <laughs> well, you probably wouldn't want to have them singing of it. If I start singing, the hogs come running, you know, so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe take me home country road or something like that. There you go. No, thanks for thanks for answering those. Uh, now, in regards to biosecurity and the safe production of feed ingredients, what are some of the key factors involved with biosecurity and production of plasma? Well, uh, as manufacturers of, of blood product, like, that we collect from slaughter plants, we've always had pretty stringent requirements to assure safety of our product uh, for many years. And, uh, you know, that's uh, regulated not only by USDA, but FDA in terms of making sure that we're uh, providing appropriate processing conditions to them after their uh, pathogens in potential pathogens in, in a raw material like animal blood. So we start out, uh, one, we only collect blood from slaughter plants, either bovine plants or first-time plants, that uh, uh, are federally inspected uh, for human consumption of the meat, okay? So we're not going out collecting blood from anywhere. You know, I mean, it's uh, there's an economy of scale involved with this too. But but uh, so we're starting with a raw material that uh, has a a very low load pathogen in it to start with, and we're collecting from thousands of animals slaughtered daily, where that blood is getting pooled uh, from multiple animals. So the likelihood of High, highly diuremic or uh, animal getting slaughtered, you know, is very slim. So, and then we bring in, you know, it depends on the arrangement with the slaughter plant here in the U.S. We may separate the plasma and the blood cells at the slaughter plant in our own blood collection rooms that are run and operated by APC. And so, in that case, we're uh, bringing the blood in into an enclosed system very rapidly from a, from the slaughter process, and we're also only collecting blood from the animals after they're they're stuck, but but before they're actually cut open, uh, okay. you know, you know during the slaughtering process. So that blood flows into the thing still uh, tray that go that we 
go becomes enclosed very rapidly. Uh, and it goes through some chill plates to chill the plasma down, you know, to refrigerated temperature. And then it's stored in insulated uh, uh, tanks at the slaughter plant uh, where our company dedicated trucks then come up and, and unload into, you know, stainless steel tanker trucks, very similar to milk trucks. Uh, and uh, it's processed very much like, you know, like milk. You know, uh, we go from the from the uh, packing plant to our dedicated off-site facilities. Uh, we have four plants in the U.S. Um, and we have actually 17 around the world. So, but uh, we uh, bring that uh, plasma or blood into the spray drying facility there. And it's sealed. You know, uh, part of the requirement that the each load is identified with a, uh, a lot number or, or a batch number traceable back to the slaughter plants. And uh, it's sealed and it has to arrive to our spray drying plant as a sealed product. And then as we unload it, we unload it into insulated, clean in place type storage silos. And from there, then it uh, again, if it's just plasma coming in, you know, we go ahead and run it through membrane filtration process, and then under high pressure temperature, it's pumped into spray dryers. And spray dryers are computer monitored and controlled to uh, have a minimum exit temperature of 80 degrees C, which is based on uh, global standards. Uh, you know, for inactivating a number of pathogens important to trade. This is again done under high pressure, rapid drying, and the rapid drying process helps preserve the biological activity components in plasma. Unlike uh, rendered products that have a prolonged excessive heat treatment that would denature the activity of some of those components. That's a heck of a process. Yeah. Yeah, I totally, I can say I, I did not know that there were that many steps in this process, and it is... Oh, we're not done yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when we're still going. <laughs> yeah, so once it's spray-dried and, and patted, we uh, hold it at room temperature, a minimum, you know, storage time of two weeks at room temperature in our uh, insulated warehouses to to ensure that one, it passes all our quality control specs, as well as uh, meeting your know, nutrient guarantees and that kind of stuff. Uh, but also, uh, especially since PED, we learned that if you inoculate the PED virus on the spray dried plasma and store it at room temperature, it will become inactivated on the drying material in less than seven days of storage at room temperature. So we have a 14-day window as an added assurance that, you know, you're not getting, you know, prolonged activity of that virus. You know, so so you're you're mainly trying to ensure that, that the virus is completely inactivated even after, after, even if it did 
by chance become contaminated onto the, the dried product. So, and then we package the dried product in 25 kg bags uh, and pallets and, and wrapped, covered with plastic socks over the top, you know, to prevent any further dust or whatever contamination yeah. that you get on it. You know, and then we, uh, and if it's in a tote bag, one-ton tote bag, we also wrap that and put it in uh, double socks or uh, uh, plastic uh, before it's shipped out to, to customers. And so we work with customers on various uh, scenarios depending on what their level of biosecurity concerns they may have. You know, they may want to move it to even another warehouse, uh, at, you know, and store it even longer. Uh, but uh, uh, your product is uh, probably one of the safest products you can use out there today. Uh, it sounds like it sounds like all those processes. This is uh, <laughs> it's just, it's pretty safe after you go through that many steps and have that many quality checks. Well, and, and you know, we want to work with our producers and to ensure that uh, we're doing all we can on our end to to uh, meet their their needs, biosecurity needs. And uh, so we go through a lot of steps and hurdles to make sure we're not uh, missing anything on, on the biosecurity side. The collection, spray drying, uh, post storage, holding times that have all been documented. We've looked at our multiple types of viruses and pathogens uh, over the last several years. Uh, including even African swine fever virus, and shown that uh, our process is very effective in activating uh, even African swine fever. That's awesome. So the industry together is, uh, I mean, industry and stakeholders are working together to ensure herd health. It's it's a very big topic right now, especially with the yeah. ASF pressure we've had over the last three four years. Um, how is the pork industry and allied stakeholders, stakeholders working with the USDA, FDA to prevent and respond to foreign animal disease outbreaks if it occurs in the U.S.? How have you guys been involved in that, and what have you seen take place? Well, uh, we, we've been participating with the uh, Swine Health Improvement Plan that's been, uh, you know, actually in progress for about three years now, uh, you know, uh, in you know, when ASF broke in China, um, you know, a lot of people got here in the U.S. got a lot more concerned about African swine fever virus coming to the U.S. And there's been a lot of research done, you know, looking at uh, feed biosafety. Uh, producer, you know, or, or groups have recommended, you know, not to import ingredients from, say, ASF. Uh, infected regions of the world and or try to reduce or minimize that. In some cases, that's not possible. I mean, there are, are certain uh, like vitamins or, or micro-ingredients uh, produced in other countries and other companies that, that uh, uh, you know, for example, like BSM or some of the groups that bring in a lot of vitamins or some of the amino acid companies, you know, they've all well, really done their homework too in terms of uh, assuring that 
if their product is made in a endemic ASF endemic region, that they're being very very conscious of the biosecurity uh, concerns, uh, you know, in their processes as well. So, so as I understand, you know, from our from a prevention standpoint, we're looking at trying to prevent the virus from entering the, the country. You know, and that's kind of where the focus has been up to date. Uh, but also, we're in the process of, you know, the pork industry, the stakeholders in the pork, pork industry, along with with the uh, uh, SHIP program. You know, we're also looking at, you know, if we get a case of ASF in the U.S., you know, we're collecting blood from solder plants, you know, and so uh, it's very important component to to be concerned about, you know, if ASL breaks the U.S. And so there's been a lot of planning going on uh, in terms with USDA, FDA, uh, the pork industry, and allied uh, uh, industry stakeholders uh, to, to look at how we're going to try to contain it as rapidly as possible and also be able to regionalize, you know, uh, say if it broke in say, the East Coast but didn't break in the Midwest, could we still export pork in, say, the Midwest to to other parts of, of the world? And so uh, uh, there, there's a lot of work uh, going on trying to uh, develop the process to assure our governments around the world that we can compartmentalize this, contain it in certain regions, uh, and then continue with this business and trade. There will be some immediate reaction. Uh, we know that you know, export markets will be hurt. Really tough. Yeah. Okay. Export will, will be. But we also want to try to work diligently to get it back in uh, the trade channels as soon as possible, and we need to have the documentation and uh, assurance uh, to other governments that you know this region of the country, for example, it should still be exempt, you know, from from our uh, ASL. So, how have you guys brought in experts to the conversation? to try and work and understand not only how you work through some of those things you just brought up, but even just the value of dried plasma I mean, or plasma proteins in general. I could see this as being a topic that most people don't just come out of college already, uh, already educated on. So how, yeah. how do you go through that process of helping producers understand that, you know, this is, this is a powerful approach to solving problems? despite how complicated it can be from your end, it doesn't need to be all that complicated for the producer. Well, in, in my time of APC, you know, you go back to 32,000s, we, uh, we had bad cow disease. A lot of countries banned use of using bovine ingredients and animal foods uh, for various time periods. In some countries that we opened, you know, to using bovine. And others still haven't since the Mad Cal days. Uh, but we have diligently worked with regulatory officials and not only the U.S., but other countries as well 
having discussions about our processing, uh, our collection of raw material, uh, and all those things in terms of how uh, we can ensure safety of the product you know, for, for the animals. And so that we feed, feed our products too. Now, and so, so it's a very sometimes long, longer drawn out time with, with some countries and other countries uh, uh, depends on, you know, have reopened or reopened plasma and even bovine plasma in some countries that had banned it before. You know, plasma is a blood product. Uh, if you go back a long time ago, uh, it used to get dumped in ditches <laughs> or landfills. Yeah. Right? And so our company started out uh, collecting the blood and saying, we ought to be able to do something with this. And so so uh, we kind of developed, the, you know, we were kind of green years ahead of, of what the mentality was 40 years ago. Away. And so we collect the blood and add value to it. Uh, and that value actually transmits back to the producer eventually because uh, they get more value for their for their pigs, you know. And if we can add more value to the blood uh, by making it into safe products for use in animal feeds, uh, then that's going to add value back to to the production. And if you think about the, the rendering being, you know, expanding beyond just APC, but you know, meat and bone meal and, and things like that, uh, we have. Uh, probably, if you collectively put, uh, you know, your pork byproducts in the slaughter industry back into what value it adds for for the price that producers receive for their pigs, it's probably adding, you know, in the neighborhood of, of you know, 15, ten to fifteen dollars per head. You know, if we didn't have these animal byproducts uh, being used in animal feed in animal feed industry. And so it's part of this sustainable uh, circular, uh, circular economy of, of making use of uh, products that used to go to waste that yeah. are now uh, utilized in, in various applications. Uh, so, and it also helps with the carbon credit. Well, I, I'm not an expert on all of that, but uh, uh, from what I understand, it. Uh, if you're if you're already use, utilizing a somewhat waste product to the uh, uh, circular uh, feeding situation, then you're reducing carbon credits. And so I think with the younger generations today, particularly, uh, this become more and more important uh, uh, to recognize that value in. You know, APC has been doing this for many years. <laughs> and the Richard has been yeah. doing this for years. And I think uh, we need to recognize that uh, there is a, a real value to that for the potential as well, as well as the consumer and the environment. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. It's an important topic that I don't think we, we hear about enough. Before you sign off here, uh, would you be able to share a golden nugget, a bit of life lit wisdom you picked up along the way? It doesn't have to be tied to the swine industry. It can be anything. But what's 
what's a golden nugget you can share with listeners? You know, uh, I go back to my, my dad. You know, he didn't have a, a lot of education. You know, he wanted to have more than he did, but uh, he grew up in the Great Depression days and was in World War II and, and he'd come back to the U.S. and the Army told him, well, I guess you better farm. That's all you know. And, and uh, But, you know, growing up, yeah, then he always said, you ain't got no problem that Lord can't solve. You know, and I think, yeah, that, you know, Tennessee logic uh, made a lot of sense to me throughout life. And that's carried, carried me through a lot of a lot of things. Uh, you know, we deal with a lot of problems today, you know, but again, we need to put our trust in what the Lord can do. do and there's nothing he can't do. Absolutely. Uh, hold on to that hope. And I think, yeah. Uh, you know, life throws you a lot of, lot of hurdles <laughs> or challenges. Uh, you know, we have wars going on, things like that. But, uh, you know, it's just having faith in the Lord, what he can do. You know, it's what we need to have our mind there. And that keeps you from getting too gray-headed. Yeah. <laughs> well, amen to that. I appreciate it. it. It's a great, great nugget. And thank you again for being a guest. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.